wherever you are and welcome to On The Record Off The Cuff album reviews. This evening we are looking at um, Nine Inch Nails album Pretty Hate Machine, the first album that Mr. Reznor released. I have with me this evening uh, regular stalwart Ian. Hello. And ex-work colleague Buddy, nice to get back together with, big Nine Inch Nails fan, Ed. Hey there everyone, great to be here. Cool, great to have you, great to have you. Okay, so Pretty Hate Machine came out in 1989. Something of a, a big impacting album for me. Uh, hit me hit me in the feels at a certain certain time of life. Probably, probably one of my favourite albums of all time, I would say. Big fan of Trent's work going forwards, though, to different degrees because it kind of changed so much. Um, as a guitarist, I always found it a fairly interesting album because whilst... Uh, guitars were used somewhat obviously there are other considerations and therefore how the guitars were used became quite quite interesting in that context but um, I won't overdo that I'll wait till we get there Um, I've been wanting to ask Ian this as well as Ian's the uh, the sound engineer type chap of the core group of people so uh, if you want to if you want to kick off and go for it a little bit with this album then off you go yeah, I mean, what what can you you say? Um, for some reason, this album, for the type of music it is, went went where albums hadn't gone before. It's always it's always interesting to me that um, you had things like I don't know, Skinny Puppy, Ministry, and various other industrial alt rock type type bands who, although popular within their their genre and niches and certainly had a, a formidable fan base never broke through into the mainstream and and this one did for some reason i think we'll probably get there as we go through the tracks but i'm going to posit two theories why that are uh, why that may be one resner is actually a slightly better pop song writer than any of those guys and he's also slightly better at uh, the atmospherics, which then led to these songs and obviously later in his career, propensity for his material to be used in film soundtracks. And so as well as hearing the songs on the radio clubs, that kind of thing, you were also getting them from movies, uh, TV shows, video games, all that kind of thing, uh, which probably added to their um, market penetration as they say. Definitely broader than just a songwriter. He's definitely sort of swathes of arrangement and the ability yeah. to think that way. So, Ed, what were your initial impressions of this album? Was it the first first no. Nail album you listened to? No, well, I, I mean, I mean um, without aging myself, well, I can't get away with this. I was four when this came out. So. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> right, that's it, he's off. Right, no more. <laughs> I uh, yeah I I admit I didn't listen to it on release or have an opinion about it <laughs> at the time. So no, for me, I I kind of I guess came into that genre through I would say through the Fragile really was my sort of entry into that world. Actually, I'll tell a lie. The the Fragile was the first Nine Inch Nails album I listened to. The very first Nine Inch Nails song I heard was Perfect Drug, but it wasn't it wasn't the proper version. It was a MIDI version. 
that my friend had used for his own animated website. And and I got hooked on this MIDI file, which was a technological feat at the time because it could be streamed on a website over a modem. Um, and and that led to the song. And I was, you know, inquisitive and wanted to hear a bit more. And that led me to the fragile. And the, uh, you know, there's some there's some songs on Fra- the fragile and stuff. I you know when MP3 players were first coming to the the forefront paddy you know i like my technology and uh, yeah. i had one of the first ones you could get and and that was we're in this together now and things like that were were, mm. were top of that that list so for me i listened to that for a long time i think probably moving on to things like downward spiral and then reverse chronological order really landed yeah, yeah. on pretty hate machine after that i think see i had i had an interesting journey into that world but um that, I love that obscure direction. Of, it's like <laughs> yeah. how, how many times removed. Every you know, everybody knows somebody seven times removed. It's like well, if you listen to a MIDI version of a song that was on a soundtrack that wasn't, it's like <laughs> how many times removed can you get? It's brilliant. Great way in. And it's a really strange starter song as well. That like that is just an odd song. <laughs> well, I would posit that the real weird thing there is, as we discussed briefly prior. The Fragile, for me, isn't as tuneful, but you've mm. got one of the biggest hooks that he's ever written in The Perfect Drug. It's absolutely deadly hook. Very, very sort of pop song yes. type thing. So I'm, I'm sort of glad you heard that first, actually, if then you went on to The Fragile, because at least it sort of chipped, chipped the melodic. It's the advantage you get when you, you, you explore and learn a music catalogue, I think, that is... Yeah. I wouldn't say it's already complete. Obviously, it's, it's still creating, but I think for this period, you know, it was already there it's it's kind of nice to explore it uh it, you can evoke your own way your own pace it's not like a film set where you need to come in at a, a certain part in the in the scenes you can kind of naturally just think oh i, I like the sound of that i want to listen <laughs> to this one i want to want to delve over there no but yeah, i mean for me it was um i would say pretty hate machine for me is up there as an album that i can re-listen to at any time uh, and i'd probably say actually nine inch nails as a band for me have either they're either first place or second place in terms of my kind of like timeless music like I, I can listen to a nine inch nail song and i feel it's still feels as crisp as when i first heard it uh similar thing for people like the pixies and and things like that i have that kind of timeless quality and yeah i, I don't know how or why or what the musical <laughs> characteristics that make that happen but it but it does it does work what a journey what a journey so i so paddy you you're more a one of the lead singles and then coming into this album because yeah, this is right in our kind of usual stomping ground of late 80s yeah, yeah. early 90s this, um, this is, i got into this album a girlfriend recommended it along with vision thing ironically enough and <laughs> um yeah got consumed by it head like a hole absolutely blew me away and then the rest of the album is fantastic too Oddly enough, prior to this, again, Ed mentioned like Terrible Eye. A Terrible Eye was probably after Head Like a Hole as well, sort of one of my favourite tracks in the immediacy, that sort of track two stomper with a certain certain pace. But I, I, I just want to pick up on, on something you said, Ian. I, I, I completely agree. His breakthrough, first album breakthrough, was down to the fact that he wrote um, pop songs. It's, for me, he's amalgamating two worlds in a way that nobody had quite done it before and then in brackets, and as a capable hook writer and a capable yeah. songwriter for the masses. So you've got, like you said, Skinny Puppy and Throbbing Gristle and things, bands like that who, you know, used a lot less melodic, more 
you know, uh, industrial sounds, soundscape, and used a bit of technology to make those things into pieces of music, but they weren't writing pop songs. Then you have like the Depeche Mode side of things, I'd say, the sort of synth pop. Yeah. So here comes a guy who blended those two things together with a really good pop writing sensibility and put sort of rock guitars on them as well. You can't lose <laughs> for me for me personally. I think it's that kind of post-metal infusion of guitars. So mm. Cabaret Voltaire had kind of got there 10 years earlier or, well, at, at least uh, get, get on for a decade earlier, especially if you listen to like a single like uh, Sensoria or, or something like that. Mm. All the elements are there. Um, and if you'd heard that and someone played you pretty hate machine you go oh yeah i can see it that's the same mm-hmm. same kind of thing but it's that it's those extra little touches it's the it, it's the heavy guitar informed by a, a whole decades worth of heavy rock and heavy metal that got people used to those uh, guitar tones and sounds and the uh, the sporadic use of the guitar it doesn't dominate it just comes in and kicks you in the nuts when it needs to mm. so it, you know it's it, it's used as as a as a weapon uh, in all the right uh, right places. So I think there's that kind of thing going on as well. But absolutely, the the songwriting, arranging, and production um, talents are probably what um, give it the edge. And use of samples, yeah. not mm. not strictly overt use of samples as well. Use of samples for percussion. A lot of the songs on here, the kind of beats you hear. Are more hip hop beats than rock beats. Absolutely. If, in fact, I would say there's only one song that's hmm, one and a half, possibly songs <laughs> are really rock songs, um, or or sort of tickle that particular fancy. A lot of the other stuff is more complex, percussive, not quite you know four on the floor hip hop beats. Essentially, back in 1989, I still think that that was you know there wasn't a lot of that around. There's a lot of interesting oh. things starting to happen with like Faith No More and things like that. Yeah. And Ministry had released Land of Rape and Honey in 1988, but again, that was they were they were sort of approaching on something that might be popular culture, but it wasn't there. You know. Yeah. Well, I, th- um, I think the art of noise probably got there early in mm-hmm. terms of using samples as percussion, but they were operating in a whole different field that kind of art pop area i think i think what makes it, this different resonate is is taking those things and placing them in that alt rock heavy metal post punk kind of um yeah. kind of scene and and i mean we've talked about this before about hair metal and then um you know grunge coming along and all these kind of things and we've had that that conversation multiple times but the reason grunge kicked is because people had just got a bit bored of the same old same old in terms of heavy rock and here was something else that was doing something else with the genre this was this was people that already liked um heavier music darker music angrier music and also hearing maybe hip hop and dance beats and samples being used in different genres for the first time having them put together so mm. it was it's their version of all that that kind of stuff so it's the, the kind of new new technology and the new styles and what have you been incorporated into a world that 
people understood because I don't know that there were many people that started with nine inch nails and spread out uh, outwards at the time that they uh, mm. they released I mean um, you know four year olds um, <laughs> accepted <laughs> that would have been very hardcore wouldn't it <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing <laughs> just just on that I was I was thinking back to the, the comments you're making there around you know not he's not necessarily doing anything new in terms of how he's created it the basic elements of that music have existed in other songs and stuff but for me it's probably one of those things where lots of small changes make quite a significant difference like absolutely the, the you mentioned the sparing use of the guitar i think he uses all instruments like that you know yeah. he he has them for sections sometimes it's really weird it'll be like at the start of a section it'll be a piano and then it'll come back in at the end of the song there's like he uses it to fit you know i think he, he looks at a section of music and thinks for that bit, I'm going to choose this. I think that's part of being a, a technologist as, a, as yeah. a musician as well. He can play stuff because he played everything on the first album, but yeah. he, he'll he think in terms of what a sequencer looks like as well as being a musician, which yeah. I think adds that and pushes him out to being that sort of composer style of person as well and good at composition. And mm. I think to, to add to that, um, we shouldn't under underestimate how he uses his voice as an instrument. He has three or four dominant mm. styles of vocal from the very kind of whispery kind of, you know, the, where the vocal's almost breaking up because there's not enough power behind it to out and out screaming and everything in between. And he uses those vocal tones to really change the atmosphere of a, of a song mm. and it can become kind of melancholy or angry or, or what have you based on that voice. And like you say, it's still very sparing. It's not like he does the angry voice and all the other instruments there being angry at the same time and what have you. He's, mm. you know, with precision, <laughs> play, placing yeah. those those different uh, tones to to actually build the composition. Sp speed as well. I've noticed, you know, you, you see things where he'll, he'll have a melodic, slow, like... Uh, section of his voice that just leads into a really fast-paced thing but it kind of overlaps so it, it kind yeah. of tails off as the fast pace starts it's he's got a really interesting use of his voice to control the speed of the song um maybe not in, in head like a hole but you know terrible life for me is just a really comp complex layered song and i think you know his voice in, in that for me is is a brilliant you know it's very it's very trent Reznor. uh i think uh, that's, that's a, a very good point and i i think that actually is more apparent live where all the music has a bit more ferocity live because he's got you know a, a band set up and if you're going to do this you can't just have them standing around like spare parts for <laughs> for 90 percent of the song just waiting for their their uh, half a bar of guitar there's a lot more going on but his voice i mean he can pull it off live uh, and it does it does that and, and and i always like the juxtaposition of songs i like music with feel and i like real musicians as much as i like programmed and simpson and what have you and i think i probably one of the reasons that uh, nine inch nails and trent Reznor's stuff resonates so much with me is it still retains that humanity for all the kind of um industrial and, and precision and on the grid programming and what have you and I think you, you you may be right. It's the voice kind of floats over that in a definite human kind of way. And like I say, live, it, I, that that's even more apparent. Mm. Additionally, his voice is very prominent in the mix. Mm. He, yeah. It's it's all around his voice. You, you, yeah, he's not embarrassed by it, is he? No, God. And the other thing, this this is not contentious. As uh, the comparison's odd, but she's the only person I can think of. But he's got, he's not like um. He's a, he's a he's a he's a solid singer, but he has a distinct 
sound to his voice. You, yep. You'd know it's Trent Reznor. That's a really obvious thing to say. But there are some singers who are really good singers, but they all live in the in the sort of same place as the sound. Like uh, Andrew Eldritch is could do, it, <clears throat> in times gone by could sing and was a was a vocalist sort of thing. But the the person I can think of as a comparison is like Madonna. Madonna is not an amazing singer, and she's got a very distinct voice. I sort of look at when more than competent, a good singer, but not like Nat King Cole or or somebody like that. Somebody who's yeah. just you know out there, stellar vocalist. And I think Trent Reznor's the same. He's distinct and he's really good at what he does, and he has that thing. There was a oh god, there was a some kind of meme esque thing online once where. Oh well, we're going to write a Trent Reznor song now. So they they do this thing where they sort of do, okay, I'm going to do Trent Reznor whispering, and I'm going to do Trent Reznor shouting, and they were absolutely spot on. What they were, it was, there was a comedic aspect to it, but the thing that they were probably more consciously than unconsciously actually underpinning is it's what you do with that that makes that really <laughs> exactly, really exactly, clever. Yeah. Anybody, you know, it's the same thing with. Um, yeah, all right, you can have a load of open chords, but why isn't everybody writing a hit album then every week, if that's the case? I think Trent Reznor's like that. And on top of all of this, right, the cherry on, on top in terms of his breakthrough and his crossover into a bigger audience, well, not crossover even, his, his immediate sort of latching onto a bigger audience was, for this album particularly, the, the, the laid bare, tortured soul. It's incredibly personal and it's yeah. incredibly... Yeah. Egotistical is the wrong word because I don't mean it in that, way, but it's it's all him. It's it's him and his pain, and and he's just he's not even trying to tell a story. He's just saying, "Look, I feel shit, and this is a reason for this. This is I'm railing against this." And yeah, but, that but it's purity not, is just amazing. Absolutely, I, you know. but you, you get the impression it's not like broadcasting that for all to hear. It's almost like you've stumbled on a private. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but one of his one of his bones of contention about playing live was it was a lot harder than you know than people might think because essentially once a lot of people were listening to him and he's got hundreds of people and thousands of people singing it back, it suddenly became, oh god. You know, I've kind of I've let, I've let I've told all these people all this stuff indirectly that. If I'd ever thought anybody was listening, I might not have quite <laughs> said the same way. He said a couple of years after it's released, didn't he? He said even then he looks back at it and saw it as quite immature, uh, which yeah. I thought was a really interesting... I took that to mean like because his capability of making music... My, my first read was like, it's his capability of making music where he thinks I've come along since X, Y, and Z. And, but I don't think it was. I think it was probably more a case of how he saw music had changed in that two years. Yeah, I mean, for, to my ears, you know, I've been listening to loads of albums. This, the music for me sounds incredibly mature. It, it sounds clever, thoughtful, well put together, layered, complex, nuanced, all those things. I, I kind of took it as if I'd have written a song to say a thing, I might have done it in a way that wasn't so blunt force trauma and overt. Yeah, I think he thought it was a little bit six form, six form poetry type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, the other thing, just from a production point of view, I was I did a bit of a deep dive into the equipment he's using because I've got all sorts of things in my box now that I can use, and I could make sounds like he's got in this album. I could not get anywhere near that with the stuff he was using. <laughs> um, Without the the kind of graphic interfaces and uh, and what have you, and the amount of of channels, I mean, I I can only imagine how many times you've got to go around with that Mac he was using to build up layers of things without it without it crashing. Um, so there's 
there's a, a very interesting technical aspect to all mm-hmm. this and it it was certainly a lot harder to write that album and produce that album when it came out than it than it would be now yeah even the use of samples samples as we were saying there that the samples he wasn't it was really you you what you, you can't you don't know it's a sample because it's like heavily distorted and reversed yeah. and all that kind of stuff so you you just fear it's just the industrial noise that you might typically mm-hmm. as- associate however I find it really interesting. Like it's almost like the way I look at it is like you can imagine him like being someone in their shed tinkering, building something. Like oh, I'll try this. I'll switch it round. I'll try that in there. Yeah. Like it, it, it seems really creative in how he creates it. And I guess in my mind, I'm always like, I try to think: Does he have this? Does he know what it looks like at the start of the process? And does he go into <laughs> it and try and? It's really hard that he eventually gets something that sounds like he imagined, or does he just think? Does his brain just slowly assemble it together as he starts playing around? Yeah, how much of it is kind of yeah. a creative journey and serendipity and how much of it is is planned? Because if you're going to use that old gear, you've got to know what you're doing to a certain extent because it's a lot of time you have to put into it to get to get a sound. It can't all be accident. But also, some of that stuff has obviously been stumbled on and, and ooh, I'll file that away because... I- <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna come in useful, and I think just to round off this thing, I think the interesting thing to say is if you look at the production notes on the album and the personnel listing, there's a lot of people on here, but they're all engineers, producers. producers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's not a long list of guest musicians or anything like that. In fact, the only musician credit, I mean, you'd be hard pushed actually to make out the what he did and why Trent Reznor couldn't have just done it himself. Yeah, it's all it's all uh, engineers and mix engineers and pre-mastering and mastering and quite famous ones though, isn't it? For a breakout album, like he got to work with lots of producers and stuff like that yeah. that he'd idolized. Mm-hmm. One thing that in back of my mind is like, how how do you do that? How do you get their buy-in if they've never heard of who you are? Like that stands out a bit. It's power of record companies. <laughs> I well, guess. yeah, I suppose. Mm. But it wasn't a big label, was it? His first one, English? no. TV, TVT, TVT yeah, yeah. was. Um, they did. I think I'm right in saying they did commercials. So essentially, they didn't handle him like a major artist when he got when he broke through and wanted to sort of stymie and say, "No, I want you to do that again, make more money." Whereas he was obviously quite obviously to anybody who looks at him closely at all, he's he's a creative genius. So therefore, he has to sort of go in his direction and do his thing. So I think that was basically the the foundation of that initial disquiet with TBT, and ultimately was rescued by Interscope just bought the label yeah. to have him basically which which was um yeah well that wasn't a bad investment was it was that, I, we got it via ireland didn't we in the uk because tvt didn't even have uh, distro uh, over here so yeah to string a bell island yeah, yeah okay and and yeah just to ever you know to have that that sort of moniker of played everything and had a hand in producing everything even mm. if you brought in flood and adrian sherwood ultimately it, you know it's kind of very much his thing Man, man, doing his own thing in a box. He, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. I, I don't think he. I don't think he cares too much for perception. I think he wants no. to build the thing that is the most truthful to his vision, and he doesn't care about the rest of it how it works. <laughs> like he's he's engaged with the community and his fan base and stuff. But like for me, he's you know the reason why most people probably don't universally love everything he's done is because he's very true to what he wants to achieve with an album. Or, mm-hmm. or a song like if he he knows he wants to go down a certain rabbit hole yeah he sticks to it he doesn't try and make that appealable to others he just stays true 
true to form. Nine Inch Nails is him. The the the, yeah. the band dynamic is there is a live band that do live stuff, and I'm sure he gets ideas from. But essentially, him until more recently with Atticus Ross, but I think they always list just Trent Reznor up until 2000 and something, and then it was Trent and Atticus. Ross. I think yeah, 2016 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, yeah, it makes sense. Which is yeah, how cool is that to have? A well, bit I, of I think um, there there are, there are a few artists that work like that there's some obvious <laughs> obvious ones that you've probably got touched down with uh, paddy um i don't know what you mean <laughs> but i i think maybe devon townsend is um the only one that comes to mind as a as a contemporary who's very much a um composer engineer producer musician who will put things together yes he does pull in session musicians but he's got a very clear idea about what what he wants them to do oftentimes uh, and then put a band together for for, for touring but I mean, speaking of touring, there's some, you know, I've, I guess when I was listening to this, right, I didn't have the funds to go and see him live in the States, let's just be honest. So I used to watch a lot of the kind of DVD releases. I had a HD DVD live concert videos, Blu-ray <laughs> live concert videos. And like the, some of the songs are just absolute stalwarts of their live sets, like Terrible Lie and, you know, something I can never have. He uses all all the time to dictate the change of pace in the concert yeah. in different sections and stuff. And like, it's brilliant that he can use his first album stuff, you know, whether he thinks it's immature or whatever, and it still features so strongly in, in, in what he does, despite having, I don't know how many albums they've got right, but he's got a large, large, <laughs> large catalogue. It's got a lot to choose from. Yes. Yeah. He has. Let's, um, let's move on to the track by track then. I, am I allowed to start the first one, please? Because this is literally one of my favourite <laughs> songs of all time. I can't. And I, yeah. I know there's some very interesting discourse coming up soon as well. So this should be quite good. <laughs> but Head Like a Hole, if, you, if you're going to write something that's going to make people want to listen to the rest of the album, and there is some irony in this as well, but if you're going to write something like that, this is the song. This is a song for me written with, three distinctly different parts each one of which is an absolutely solid killer hooky part you've got like the um verses around like a really sort of funky sexy bass line thudding along works beautifully the chorus head like a hole like as you saw it, it the chorus is like metally rock gonzoid recorded guitars sort of fury and everything really really catchy and then sort of the chorus two well shall i say the bridge part which really is chorus two is probably the most catchy thing on top of all that anyway the bow down before you you've so you've got these three component parts which are freaking massive each in their own right which if you're going to write a song you'd take any one of those three parts put it in the song and you'd probably have a song that that shift shift copies right this is just all three things amalgamated together into this absolutely killer breakthrough single i think it was the second single actually it's down yeah. uh, down in it was first but i remember you know bumping into people and smashing into people at the clubs we used to go to back in those days ian and <laughs> and this you know and this came on when you got the the little in the percussive building intro again whilst this is probably the most straight rock song form for on the floor song of the whole album you still have this peculiar little percussive okay we're going to trickle it in until we get to that bass line which is just going to you know pound your brain just an absolutely amazing superb song and again going back to what you said about the the vocals 
this prominent voice, the voice is on top of the mix. So to leverage for the spooky kids or whoever's equivalent or the you know, people who buy mainstream music, uh, mm. the younger audiences, the teens who want something to relate to, that was there too. Vocal high in the mix, tortured soul, you know, angry, reflective. It's all there. It's all there straight away. Track one, bang, in your <laughs> face. And if you exclude Prince songs from my list, this, this as a song, this is in my top five favorite songs of all time, comfortably. I'll, I'll, I'll count you, Paddy. You're way too, <laughs> know, you're way too optimistic on that. Sorry. <laughs> I, I really like the song, so I'll start off with that. However, for me, I found, I found it as a song I like the most easiest like it had that right you know a pop song right instantly lovable or recognizable you would say in terms of those characteristics i really like it's a song that took me into the album however once i'd listened to the album a few times i rarely revisited it as much like i'd, I'd listened to it a lot you know got imagined what my playlist count is on it and stuff like that but for me almost every song that i like immediately i also fall, I fall out of, of of kind of love with it a little bit quicker as well and whereas for me, like the more complex songs on the album, I can still listen to and still keep that engagement. I don't know, for me, Head Like a Hole was too, I don't want to say it was too simple. Maybe maybe I'm just classifying really the kind of main chorus section here, but like I definitely found it was his one of his more traditional songs um, mm-hmm. or, or could have been like if you were to listen to it, we, we said before, like if you were to listen to that song and you were to listen to it in comparison to some of the other stuff that was going on, it feels closer to that than I think maybe some of his other stuff. Would agree. No, 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 would agree. I... Kill us. I don't want to take your vibe. Kill us. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's all completely subjective in the end, isn't it? And I mean, again, I am diametrically opposed in into if I was to make a, a, a Nine Inch Nails playlist, this would always be the first song and I could listen to this over and over and over and over again. And I, I agree. With, I know what you're saying. Some, the, the, the sugary, the thing that hits you first and there's the sugar on the tip of your tongue, that, for certain songs that does go, but for me, if the song is just above a certain level, it's maintainable. But it's subjective. Mm. It is subjective. I, it's, it's an interesting point. I, I mean, I'm I'm obviously on kind of Paddy's side of the fence on <laughs> on this one to the extent that I think this might be the album deployment of the B card banger of the of the day. <laughs> you said it first. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is the song I. I I first saw this, I think it was, uh, so Channel 4 used to do like a MTV type thing overnight that they used to call Music Box. And there was a heavy rock section, which was initially called Power Hour, and then it became Raw Power later on. And I saw the video on this, and it probably would have been 89. And it was, I, I watched it through, and it was like, oh, right, I guess there's a new band that I really like now then. And pretty much bought, bought the album off, off off the back of that but i think it's it's interesting what you're saying ed because if i think about the album as uh, as, as a whole i can see how i would pull off live a decent cover version of head like a whole i don't think i could do justice to any of the other songs on on the album and so i understand what you're saying about that immediacy and the accessibility and the and the fact that it is slightly more 
of its time in terms of its contemporaries mm. and that that kind of uh, feel. So, and I think with, with I've, I've also experienced it in the past that notion of the song you get hooked on initially with a band is the one you kind of go off after time as you as you dig deeper. I think like Paddy, that hasn't happened to me on that, like a whole. I've been listening to it for what thirty something yeah. years um and i i should imagine i'm still going to listen to it for another 30 years without necessarily getting uh getting tired of it it's uh probably because it has all the connotations that paddy was talking about i mean mm. it was you know we we weren't i won't say how old we were but we weren't four years old when this came out <laughs> and to, to us it was a soundtrack of you know uh, life and partying and uh, nights mm. out and, and clubs and things so it, it's got a slightly different uh, residency <laughs> in our kind of uh... power of power of music i'll have to say you know when i was yeah. when i was going through that phase in my life there'll be songs that stick in my mind in the same way because they mean something to me personally and that and i think you know when you when you read like the critics reviews and all that kind of stuff i know i'm in the minority on uh, on it not being my favorite song i do really like it but yeah no it's it it is interesting how you can't as a human peel away your liking of a piece of music you can't you can't separate it from that emotional response versus that do i actually subjectively like this song yeah irrelevant of that which i don't know or at least i can't i don't think i mean this this whole um podcast series that we do it's all about our subjective feelings about the songs you (laughs) know we're not we're not musicologists yes some of us are musicians and producers and and what have you but still we're only ever looking this from how does this make me feel what do i think about this this thing Mm. not not what anyone else should think about it well i'll tell you what ed if you want to move on to the second uh, second track, then let me know what you think about this. So, I mean, Terrible Lie for me, I think is up there. And I think I think the reason it's up there is because my most favourite way of consuming or listening to Nine Inch Nails is probably live shows, the recordings of the live shows. I find that the just the, the at- atmosphere translates really well. Like the, the HD DVD I, I mentioned before, Rest in peace, HD DVD is a format. Um, <laughs> was and, and I got it because it had it in you know five point one surround sound. It was a fantastic show. I can't I can't remember the city it was in, but it was it was just I don't know. I I, I was just I, I couldn't I couldn't take my eyes off it kind of thing. Like I would just rewatch it all the time. And and the difficulty is is when you overindulge yourself on on the live music tracks, they can sound a bit skinny on the. On, on the studio tracks like it can sound a little bit less less volume so to speak i think actually just just to pick up on, on that before sorry to interrupt you but i think actually this album as a whole is quite skinny it's the, the yeah. low end isn't quite there and it's very mm. it's very bright and it, and it mm-hmm. is very very thin in places oftentimes if you're trying to make something heavy and hard hitting you go you go loud and punchy and you make mm. sure you've got you fill the entire frequency range and, and what have you i don't know whether it's it, it, it's as much to do with the, the the kind of mastering flavor of the time i would i would guess as anything else so yes i definitely understand the difference between the kind of live feel and mm. uh, and and the recorded version sorry back to you <laughs> really really interesting point you the, you're right the album is 
is you know uh, you know it, pr- preparation for this podcast and stuff you, you re-listen to these things and I think one of the things that struck me was I was trying to think back to when I first heard it is you know I'm probably listening to it now on like you know some really nice headphones or something akin to that but when I when I listened to this the first time round I listened to it on a 69 pound Amstrad hi-fi uh, which <laughs> I don't think was a particularly high-end <laughs> device at the time but it and still sounded awesome in comparison to awesome MIDI played out of a PC well it was it was a step up for uh, I, I've got a fond spot for that mini <laughs> too much. I, I I listened to it the other day as a bit of a take back. Maybe you could probably stream that without worrying about copyright. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but no, I just find terrible life for me like a, a song that when you listen to it, there's so many different. Paddy, more eloquently than me, you 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 sort of broke down head like a hole into the different stages and things. And I think when you listen to Terrible Lie for me, there's just there's just so much to it in terms of the instruments he's using and the different levels. And I think, I think for me, it, cause it goes through such a journey. I think it's why he sort of uses it as that transition flip um, song mm-hmm. sometimes in the live performances. I think it's just, it's just really versatile. I think it sounds great on the album. I think it sounds great live. Like it's just a, I, I don't know, for me, it's a very Trent Reznor song and it probably for me on this album, I'd say it's probably my favorite song on the album. This song as well means a lot of different things to me. I cannot think of this song without thinking of the second big cultural breakthrough that Nine Inch Nails had post Downward Spiral, which was the performance at Woodstock. I sat in my bedroom as, as a as a younger lad and I listened to it live on the radio. I don't know if Radio 1 had it. I nearly said streamed it, but this is like, I'm yeah. on the radio, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember listening to all the spooky shit before Pinion started to grow from the broken EP and they opened with Terrible Lie. And I I don't think up until that point I'd heard them live. And I think as somebody who plays a bit, it's always fascinating mixing. We've kind of done it since, but it's fascinating mixing technology with more, you know, your organic instrument types. And I always wondered what it would sound like. And I just remember how massive, first of all, how spooky it was. So genuinely put you on edge. It was tense. You were listening to it. And and Pinion itself does that really, really well. That build, that build, it gets mm. louder and louder and it's repetitive. And then you hear the the sort of opening percussive first few bars, along with the signature clonk, the true into we've used this word industrial. I I think that Trent Reznor in, in my head, I don't really think of him as a hardcore industrial musician, oddly. I think he's somewhere in the grey area of so many circles crossing over. He's he's the pin in the, in the in the thing on the wall that's holding it all together. So whilst there are industrial sounds and industrial leanings, I don't consider him hardcore industrial. But the, those, the, the signature clunk, 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 <laughs> it's just those are pure throbbing gristle industrial sounds right and then he fires into this stomping paste tune mm. and it's massive it's powerful Sim- whilst whilst i am how i am about head like a hole and to some degree wish this also is very very strongly one of my favorite songs on this album fantastic quote that i read that uh, richard patrick who went on to do filter was one of his first it was i think his first other live guitarist he when when Trent Reznor was explaining how he wanted him to play it, he said, "Right, I don't want you to go 
nah, nah, D-E. I want you to go, fuck you. <laughs> and that was how he how he put it across. And and it's, that's utter perfection. It's like, yeah, that makes so much sense when you listen to what this song's doing. As Ed's already pointed out, it's a great pivot point for gigs to change your mood or establish mm. a mood. You can go from something which is either very slow or very fast and you hit the mid-pace stomp. Um, so it's it's great for that. And it, it's it's a freight train of a song. Freight train of a song. But I'm not going to say it because you've already said that for an, for, for Head Like Holy. <laughs> so I'm not, I, it, it's only allowed one one use of podcasts, so I can't use it, but it is one of those uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, and, and the, oh, sorry, one of his other... I don't want to use the word trope because it cheapens it. It's something, as I say, it goes back to what I said before. He uses certain mechanics regularly that work brilliantly yeah. for him, but it's because of his genius that they work brilliant for him. They're not tropes anybody could go and use. And that is his, he brings in a, I hate to use the word, but it, it works sort of a spooky um, atmospheric synth pad on whatever the second phase of his song is in the background. And he does this on loads of songs. And again, mm-hmm. on this one, you've got this stomp, bang, bang, ogre coming down the, the trench at you, bang, bang. <laughs> and then it cuts to having this synth, these spooky synth pads in a nice little cyclical progression. Just fucking fantastic. <laughs> I don't think I've got much more to add to that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a great track. And I think if we look at it from an album point of view, it's a brilliant juxtaposition with the opener. A lot of the albums we've looked at, tend to get two or three songs in before they change the mood or change the the tempo they mm. kind of establish a pattern um, this does it straight away <laughs> so you know so here we go we had like the whole this kind of uh, stompy dancey thing and then it goes nope right we're gonna give you just as much energy and power but we're gonna take the tempo out of it and it's uh it's uh, incredible to pull off it's a good point for me in terms of the nine inch nails albums i definitely see the, the structure of this album has been a bit less jumbled not necessarily in a bad way but like some of the albums feel like incredibly it's almost like the songs were conceived with the album theme in mind and then they were layered and sort of organized to suit how mm-hmm. he wanted you to feel listening to it with this one i feel it's slightly more chaotic um and maybe that goes back to that kind of immature comment or something like that but like that step change is so quick like you say between the two songs and the difference and stuff. And then, you know, some of the later songs, you know, Sanctified and stuff, and then into something I can never have. It's a real, it doesn't, for me, it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It doesn't flow like like you might expect it to with an album yeah, uh, of its time. And I, I think maybe that gives the whole album a slightly unsettling feel that actually then enhances the the kind of mood of the, the tracks and themselves. The fact that it doesn't feel quite, quite the way it should yeah maybe maybe i'd love to know what what resner thought of, of sisters of mercy oddly enough because i see great parity between like vision thing ribbons head like a whole terrible eye four on the floor rock song catchy into big stomping power crawler type of thing uh, which is i'm sure it's not intentional at all but it's just interesting the dynamic but like you say it's a little bit jarring which is yeah, so it's neither a good nor a bad thing. It just it is a thing, isn't it? But um, now it works a treat. It does. Um, do you want to uh, take down in it then, Ian? Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting one again because you go uh, straight from the kind of we've had a rock song, we've had a, a kind of almost kind of goth or post-punk moody 
kind of thing. And now we've got hip hop. And I mean, the, the the initial drum sounds and what have you was straight off the kite. I mean, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, you've all those kind of sounds, especially the big boingy kick, which I absolutely love. But there's a, there's a lot to this track, which, which owes more to hip hop than anything mm. else but coming back to what you're saying about the the samples they're not hip-hop samples they're not blasts of of things layered on they are atmospheric and they're kind of foundation kind of samples that that, that come in so you know that's that's where it becomes its own thing rather than being a, a kind of a hip-hop light <laughs> type of thing or, or, or a stolen hip-hop uh, meme but all the nine inch nail hallmarks are still in there you've mm. got the the shouted vocals and whispered vocals, the uh, spoken vocals. You've got the megaphone and telephone effects coming in, to, uh, distorted vocals and, uh, and what have you. So it, it has everything that you expect from Nine Inch Nails, but a, but a completely different um, uh, texture to play with. Yeah, it's, it's, it takes a different... Um, it's a very playful approach i think he's taken to, to, to some of uh, to some of the song it's interesting actually i for me it's a song that i think i used to i think on first listen probably wasn't as drawn to whereas my own musical tastes have evolved and changed over time so now i find it one of the more interesting songs on the on the album so like you know i you know, there's personal preferences and thing in there but it's um I remember sort of reading up ahead of this and stuff and, and there's some sort of quotes in there, you know, around this being, I think Paddy, you mentioned around skinny puppy and, and things like that, you know, and he's openly admitted, uh, I wasn't aware this openly admitted it's a rip off uh, or, or owes a lot to, to that song. I, I kind of like the, uh, it's kind of unashamedly, you know, his approach. I don't think he minds. Like For me, he seems, sees music as, it's just this big mixing pot that he can pull in from, et cetera. And uh, nothing's, you know, nothing's out of touch. Nothing's not possible. But yeah, really interesting song. Although I don't think it's representative of the album, I can see from a music record company's point of view why they would perhaps choose this as a lead single because it, it has more contemporary sounds with main, mm. the stuff that was in the, let's say, the pop and mainstream charts at the time, mm. those drum sounds are not going to frighten anyone that's been listening to mainstream music for the last, uh, pop music for the last, you know, eight eight years at this point and, and what have you. It certainly wouldn't be the one I'd have chosen because <laughs> it's obviously the one I'd have chosen, which was the, the first one I, I saw, which, which turned my head. But I can see why from a music executive's kind of marketing campaign planning, why why, why they would go with that one. I think that's a really good point. You and I are of the same mind because of the shadow of Head Like a Hole in a sense, but mm. absolutely this was the right choice for a first single. No, I think you're right. It, it speaks to, it actually speaks to a bigger genre than the rock genre probably yeah. is the bottom line. Was this a song you first, did you, was this, did you guys hear this song first or did you hear Head Like a Hole first? Head Like a Hole. Head Like me. a Hole, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I, I was surprised. I hadn't realized this was the first signal, I think. I got it all at once because I got into the album rather mm. than the... I, I I had listened to the whole album prior to... I mean, I think Head Like a Hole did take my head off, no pun intended, but I definitely listened to the whole album several times because I was um, recommended it uh, as a whole unit sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good single. I could be, yeah, that's a very good point, that, Ian, because I think you're absolutely right about that. There's little things. There's another... This is something I'd I'd read as well, so I didn't come up with this myself. And I, I thought, my God, yeah, that's so such a good observation. 
is um, in a lot of sort of hip hop tunes, you have like nursery rhyme refrains and things like mm. that and sort of secular ones. And here you have the whole sort of rain, rain, go away, come again yeah. another day. So again, he's, he's like you said, Ed, it's a mixing pop for him. He doesn't yeah. care where it comes from, what it is. If it's part of his picture, then he'll, he'll put it in uh, and that works. I'm just um, checking on the old Wikipedia. It's possible that we didn't hear that this as a single because it might not be released as a single in the uk uh, there's no there's uh, no um chart information for uk just just us so it's highly likely it would have been an import only type thing which would never have tripled the charts right okay didn't know that i suppose that makes a little bit more sense in uh, in seeing the headlight hole first and what have you uh, oh and the, the only other thing as well i like it when he goes loco with his vocal at the end as well because that's Mm. yeah he has all these styles uh, but he's really really losing it and using some nice little production techniques and just basically screaming you know um, <laughs> but that that works fantastically in the context <laughs> of his presentation yeah. and who he sounds to be and what he sounds to have to say it's almost like it was almost ah oh god i don't know if i dare say this sort of the emo sensibilities it's 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 there. I know a lot of people don't like that kind of thing. I, do, I really do. It speaks to me because I'm a miserable bastard. But <laughs> it really does speak to me, all that kind of thing. So I was I was always going to fall for this guy as an artist and, a, and this music is, is, is a big thing. I can think of so many from um, sort of genres and sub-genres that have been considered emo that this, this album speaks to so much. Less so than Downward Spiral as well because Downward Spiral is... It's personal in a way, but it's also a little bit broader and a little bit more thought out. Definitely, this is this is black. There is a black parade esque aspect of this to me. Not not in how it sounds, just the the the, the sort of push. the mood. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Should we move on to sanctified then? Overt lyrics. I mean, the the one thing that stuck with this is this is one of the non single tracks that got played very very regularly at the club that I used to go to. And then yeah. used to go to. Yeah, it, it's all about um, about certain lines that stand out and <laughs> what yeah. you do inside people and blah 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 blah. You know, as an artist, you know, to sort to to use a line come inside of her and so on and so forth. There are so many people who would do that for shock value. There are so many people. It would suit their genre and it would suit an extremist way of delivering something. It just doesn't feel. Again, there doesn't feel to be anything particularly planned about it. It's a an honest personal bullet that's just it sounds real. He sounds real. And it's, that's it, why in spite of itself, it works perfectly. Sorry. Yeah, it just sounds frank rather than Yes. Yeah. Good way yeah. of putting it. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I don't think he intent he wrote it with the intention of I think it was more a case of that's how his mind thought when he was in that creative phase i don't think he intended for it to be i'm going to create a shock piece here and 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 you know get people's attention it's interesting though lyrically i find it quite different than a lot of his songs i kind of quite like statementy like it's quite you know you know i am justified and i am purified and all that kind of stuff and i think i find it i don't know it's almost it's maybe less storytelling than some of his other songs i don't know for, for me it just stood out as a bit more of a not not a statement piece but it, a different a different approach from him lyrically than than maybe some of the other songs especially especially considering the song that comes next and stuff it's just so different lyrically you wouldn't have said they're from the same kind of author yeah 
No, I, I really agree with that. Really agree with that. Just love uh, Frank. You use the word Frank. Frankness is absolutely mm. perfect. Ian. I guess from musical perspective, there is a lovely the breakdown that's just after halfway through. You get like these sort of uh, lower in the mix choral things going on. Yeah. Again, it's like where the hell did that come from? What kind of what kind of mind would have the bright idea to to use that there? Uh, and it, but again, it works perfectly, which is testimony to his, his ability to cook, isn't it? Um, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. I like I like the phrase to cook. That's a good. Um, <laughs> it's a good. It's it's you know going back to that man mixing things in his shed or whatever and trying to call yeah, it yeah. something. I think it speaks to that. And it's plus it's, it would be fascinating to know like. Ian said about journey of discovery and serendipity and things like that. I think he will have experimented. I think he will have tried and tried and tried so many different things. But again, it's it's picking the right thing. You must hear so many things that they, and you think, oh well, it'd be interesting to put that in for eight bars, sixteen bars. The kids love it. The producer, the the, the record company will love that I've done that. But to actually get the right thing that just sits in that template and doesn't stand out like a sore thumb or imply that it's there for the sake of it. Good cooking, man. Good cooking. <laughs> Excellent herbs and spices. <laughs> uh, and of course the, uh, the key ingredient here is that bass riff. Oh yes. Um, yes. I mean, it's fantastic. And also there's considerably fewer notes in it than there's only two notes in it. They're just octaves of um, E and F. I wonder whether that was a, um, you know, a almost a finger exercise. You know, the, you kind of think you pick up a guitar, Paddy, and what do you do? There's there'll be a there'll be a thing that you always do with a guitar. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I'm I'm the same. And it's like that sounds like oh, if I was trying to practice kind of slap and pop, I you know, I'm I'm very much a a pick led uh, bass player. Um, my uh, my slap and tickle is not really up to up to that. But yeah, it's 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 brilliant because it's not. It's not quite right as well. There's there's a few little human moments on that. It's not mm. been polished, and I like that. I like the fact that the mm. uh, the second time it comes around to the uh, to the low F, it doesn't do the uh, the E first. It kind of leaves a gap in in the riff, and it's just little things like that just make it slightly more uh, human uh, and organic, like we were talking about earlier, with all this very programmed stuff on there. And to be able to stick that same riff pretty much for the entirety of, of the song, just with those um, breaks for the the kind of vocally choral type pads, is it's really some kind of achievement because you because it's not a short song by by any stretch. You know, it's about like tw- twice the length of, of a standard pop song, probably. So to essentially do it on on a one riff that lasts maybe two bars, it's uh, it's yeah, it's quite an achievement, and it's infectious. I don't think there's a non-infectious song on it, to be honest. (laughs) They're they're all like that. I was saying this to Ed earlier. This this is where it becomes difficult, perhaps, later on, that you've got really good, solid songs, but there isn't that much more you can say about them necessarily because you've said all the things, most of the aspects of them and the themes have sort of already been covered in previous songs, but we'll see how how we go and keep going. But for the next one... Well, I was going to say, this, this is the one song that has a musician's credit Ah, other yeah. than Trent, which is the drone guitar at the end, which then mm. takes us into something I can never have. I I like it because for me, it's personal to me. But because I got in through fragile, I kind of 
the sound you know when you explore an artist you're yearning to hear a bit more of the thing that drew you in and for me the piano was something i associate maybe you know maybe i didn't particularly listen to a lot of you know music where a piano played such a central part and i think it really drew me into the 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 shape of the song the way he used it the tone it set and i think this is the first song on the album where they hear the piano and it's just um i don't know just i just instantly liked it and gelled with it i felt at home with it coming from the fragile so it could have it could have in my mind it could have come on that album really in terms of how it how it flows through very slow and you know i think someone said before about how he uses his voice it's almost breaking kind of thing it's really slow and just kind of taping off at points it's not he's not shouting he's not he's not going on hard he's he's kind of drawing it out over a bit of a slower pace and yeah i've just it's a song i like to listen to just close your eyes and stuff and absorb in the moment maybe a little bit um very atmospheric i guess which speaks to me you know but I mean, that's my own personal likings but it's uh yeah, I don't know, for me, just a good song. Oddly enough, sometimes I wouldn't have said it's a song that works live particularly well, but when you watch it live, it does. It helps calm everyone down after a bit of a mad moment. It's a nice it's a nice breather song. If, if you've just played Wish or March of the Pigs, you kind of need yeah, this. You need to give people <laughs> a break. <laughs> a very, very personal song for me to do with the person who recommended the album to me, actually, all those years ago, funnily enough. It's quite something, is this song. It really is quite something. Mm. I think the simplicity, the sort of, again, spooky pads in the background, and then you get a, a, a pure piano, which we haven't heard up to this point, right? As soon as you get that repeating refrain, mm. I don't think there's kind of any doubt where this is going. I, I think it's a, you know, I've lost you, I miss you song, right? Mm. And, and it's... It's just executed with a plum. Ten out of ten. Yeah, yeah, amazing. <laughs> a pre- bit of a precursor to hurt, possibly, which became even bigger. But of the two, this is the one for me. I think this pips it. Um, yeah, it's the perfect orchestration. I yeah. like you, Ed. I, I I'm a sucker for for piano in places you don't necessarily expect to hear piano and. Um, I love, I like guitars, I like electric guitars. I like piano, I like synths. I hate electric piano for some reason. It always grind, grinds my gears. Um, it's too... But there's something about a piano that either is or sounds like it is in the middle of a massive room with no one else in it except the someone, you know, and he's playing a three-note ostinato, for, you know, with a huge amount of, of, of reverb in that. And just to just to clinch that mood, stick cello pads underneath it. I mean, cello and, and reverbed piano, that has been a signature mood, uh, melancholy kind of sound in popular yeah. music for decades, and it's just perfectly... But as you as you describe it, I can hear it in my head. It's, it's a simple song, isn't it? It's not yeah. complex and all firing at once. And as you taught then, I can hear it playing in my head. I can hear it because it's that, you know, it's it's just very visceral. Uh, I don't know. It's um, fantastic. It, so wasn't it wasn't it a movie soundtrack or am I make am I getting that confused? I don't know, but it certainly sounds like it. It could or should be. It's the first song on the album that sounds composer's song. Yeah, and he, yeah. he was. Yeah. A- trained pianist i think trent Reznor. i think that was his his mm. his hands-on musical introduction so this yeah is... and he was a synth player in previous bands wasn't he yeah. so this is something that was always always mm. coming i think and the other thing about it is right i always 
it sounds like because of the of the sort of continuous because it's not like pads that go in in a cycle it's almost pad sort of pads that are just morphing and so yeah. yeah rolling hills kind of thing yeah, yeah yeah but it sort of makes it sound like not only is it a, a sad song around this keyboard motif it's like it's in a, a some kind of virtual dark cave of solitude as well and that pad <laughs> it's just i don't know it just sort of works on so many levels you, you mentioned earlier that um you don't necessarily see trent Reznor or nine inch nails as being the epitome of industrial hmm. music which I, I i would agree with he's, he's he certainly has that club in his bag but it's you know it's not the defining uh, genre by any sense but here we have what could only describe be described as mechanical steam jets providing the the percussive aspects of the of the chorus i mean you don't get much more <laughs> um uh, industrial than than the sound of large amounts of steam escaping from pipes well, with in a, a piano percussive way yeah I mean, who, does, who does that so maybe yeah. that piano is in some kind of uh, underground lair with a <laughs> faulty heating system um or, or factory ro- ro- i can know. sort of see him in the back cave <laughs> i was <laughs> yeah, exactly. i was literally <laughs> thinking the back cave when you said that yeah but that's that, that's kind of the beauty of it, it it's yeah. the quality of that conveyance is so strong you know he really emphasizes and gets the most out of the notes as well with the piano. Like yeah. it's almost like it would have been five notes, but he uses three kind mm, of yeah. thing and, and it leaves your brain guessing in between the gaps and stuff. It's used so sparingly, which again is, is his MO, but yeah, I just, yeah, I love it. And again, in terms of the, the Woodstock concert where I guess he was, like say he was, he was pushed again in popular culture and so many people heard that and were aware of it. And it's like a, perhaps, you know, a, I look at that as sort of a slightly tiered down version of like Queen at Live Aid or even U2 at Live Aid. It was it was real breakthrough for him to have that song played in that set where it was played. It's like people must have <laughs> just, you know, it was a wow moment as well all over again. It's like, oh my God, this is, you know, minimalist. It's a piano. It's just this guy on his own. You know, the scary Robin Fink monster's gone. It's like, oh, it's, it's just... Cool yeah, song. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> All right, well, we move on to the um, second half of the album. Now, this is, as I alluded to previously, I, I, I kind of find this, whilst there is another single to come yet, which is a bang. Ah! Which is a really good song, sorry. We've used bang, we've used bang. This, this is where you, you get into sort of rock-solid continuity quality. And I find some of these a bit harder to expand upon, but let's try. Let's try because I think sort of um, the I think the personalities to a large degree in terms of individual songs lived inside one. These mm. songs are fantastic. There's nothing wrong with them. They they keep the quality up, but I just think they have more of a sameness perhaps on side two. Anyway, let's with a couple of little exceptions, but let's uh, let's press on and see what we think. All right, kind of I want to. First one that starts with with just a vocal, although fairly fa- fairly briefly. Great catchy song. It's using a lot using a lot of the same uh, technical uh, songwriting sounds and techniques that we've heard up until this point. There is a particularly good, not unusual. I'd notice this sort of gonzoid process guitar break before the whole thing drops down, which is like really really manic and said compared to the sort of. Again, it's a bit more of a 
I wouldn't say stompy, but it's some somewhere between sort of a high tempo and, and moderate. It's very like lyrically, it's very um whereas before he's been describing like situations and, and things as as well, this is very me like and I want to and this and me and I and I and there's a it feels to me like he's I don't know if it's in the title, but it feels to me like he was trying to trying to speak in a different way or something on this on this one or convey an emotion rather than a situation or a, a wider thing to me ly- lyrically i find it i find it really interesting so there's some, some i love you know the opening lyrics and stuff i think i can't shake this feeling from my head there's a devil sleeping in my bed and things i think for me i just really like i like the intro and i like the, the way it starts and i like i like some of the songs probably falls off for me a little bit lyrically as the song goes on mm. um as it enters the kind of repetition and and things etc interesting song but going back to your previous point pro- probably not the one i would choose to go to the album to to listen to i don't mm. I, I wouldn't find myself thinking i really want to listen to that song uh in particular where there's someone here that stand out that you're like i, I need that song now it's so hard when you're sort of talking about things in this context mm. because it's all, it, it sounds like it's disparaging and it really isn't. It's just the bar set so high and there was some such strong songs with such strong personalities. You know, they inform each other and it's kind of unavoidable in a way. And the, the only other little note for me is that this is a very personal thing because it's silly really. We'll get to um, that's what I get obviously pretty quickly. But they, he starts using, there's a particular synth sound, which is probably one of my favourite synth patches slash sounds on the whole album, which he uses for the first time in this sound, in this song, which is uh, used in the opening of That's What I Get. So I always make this peculiar little personal correl- correlation there. It's like, I'd love to know which one he wrote first. <laughs> and so I'm like, <laughs> well, I'll use this for the intro, but this is sort of fit going in here. Or did he go put this one here i could use this for an intro because i've got a little riff and who knows it's all in the mind of the genius <laughs> i think to my mind it's a much kind of lighter weight song i think that's where where i'd go with this a bit more mm. poppy puts me in mind of you know Wee or prodigy or, or something but a kind of lighter version but almost like happy mondays in places i'd say there's kind of a bit of a groove coming on mm. i tend to agree with ed i mean it's every album has the track which is your least favorite or the one you find the weakest this is this is mine on this it's not to say it's mm-hmm. not a bad song but it's if i was to rank them this is going to be the the bottom one i think yeah on to single number three which was sin it's an absolute Don't sort of banging dance song <laughs> <laughs> banging not banger no no no, no. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't quite go there yeah more of a sort of dancey song it's so frenetic and so busy when it gets going plus uh the there's been some really good there's the long form version of this tune as well which is absolutely fantastic on the single if you're thinking yeah. in terms of those singles as well they're all so different as, as we've said before you've got uh down in it which has the hip hop overtones and i'm completely coming around to ian's way of thinking yes it's absolutely the best best one to put out head like a hole the rock stormer this mm. this feels again not overtly like a dance tune but there are little aspects of sort of repetition freneticism some of the sounds lots of things hitting on 16ths it, it's it's all there it's more dance, got a dance dance thing yeah yeah and I, yeah, it's I love got, it for that it's got such a rapid beat so heavy and fast with the vocals going and going and going again i think for me yeah, it's the, I think the only thing that's rocky about it is the tone he strikes with his voice. That the way he yeah. he uses his voice in it is really rocky. 
don't think there's anything else in the song that I'd sort of say that's, you know, that's a rock song. I think for me, it's just, well, as he always does, right? He mixes, he mixes things together and, and see if it works. But yeah, I, I love Sin. I love Sin. I think going back, it's always a heavy feature of live sets. It's something he, I don't know, maybe he looks like he enjoys. Like for me, I don't know. I, you buy into songs probably where artists really like them and, and things like that. And I always felt with Sin that, you know, it's maybe maybe one of his favorites. I'm completely guesstimating that at all, but you know, I, I love I love it live. It's it's always a, it's always a I won't use the word. It's always a good song. Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> recurring in in the live sets. It's yeah. um, in the same way as um, Terrible Eye and some. Of course, it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lyrically, quite complex as well, and you know, maybe a bit more typical of a song in terms of the, the structure of the lyrics and stuff. But I think. I think he's a brilliant lyricist. I don't necessarily think he's the best in the world, but I think he does it really well. And I think, yeah, again, for me, listening to it as a uh, as a three, four-year-old, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I don't know. I, I found it I found it very interesting uh, in, in, in a world where you don't know it necessarily has that complexity. Yeah, it's, it's a nice, um, a nice tradition to pull off that kind of anger in something that's, predominantly mm. dancey like that i think there's a couple of touchstones in it for me the the drums and the synth bass have got um a, a few things in common with carter and mm. it's it's in it's in that side that kind of poppy kind of punky kind of um thing that, that it's, it's that area of, of my head that uh that it that occupies and um i'm quite pleased with that uh, and also the, the samples are used very nicely. Again, they're oh. kind of in there and, and mm. you know, they're buried, and they're, but they pop out when it needs to be. And they're not kind of, oh, let's throw a sample on top of this. They're a kind of sample in it. Hip hop sample, I think. Was it pe- paid in full or something he used at the start and the end? Oh, the sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, think, I think that's paid in yeah. full. I was going to mention the samples, honestly. Yeah, no, it, again, fits great cooking, great cooking. Just fits beautifully. <laughs> If we move on to that's what I get. This this is a bit of a it was always a bit of a sleeper for me. This is one of my sort of quiet favourites on the album because I just love that that intro. It, it's a song that I think is it's it's sort of put together a little bit more sectionally. You have synth part here. You have more of a breakdown here with a straight bass line and drums and so on and so forth. So it's kind of, it's hard to talk about that because it's not I'm not suggesting it's sung by numbers because I don't think it is at all. Yeah, I, I, there's always been something about this song I really, really like. I'd say of the ones that haven't got massive personality, this is my favourite one, then, I suppose. That's, you know, how on earth I'm subcategorising them to such tiny degrees, I don't know. That's obviously, I'm thinking about it far too much. The, it's interesting you mentioned the the intro there. I think the first part of the intro, when it's just the um, the kind of synth bass, that, that synth sound always puts me in mind of the seen in the breakfast club when they're um, running down the corridors and it's got that, that oh, tension yeah. building stuff it's, yeah. it's just a same, similar tonal par- palette uh until the you know the uh, bit you know the, the kind of lead synth comes on on top of it anyway which always reminds me of the cure a little bit i can't, I can't place what cure but uh, uh it kind of it lights up that <laughs> neuron for some reason and again, with a view to the sort of sectional thing, as soon as he gets to the lyrics, what do you have in the background? Nice, moody, cyclical pad. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's worked again. Lo- love the idea of the people putting the thing up on YouTube again to trope out 
oh, now we want a pad. Now we want it to be frenetic, do, 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 singles on a snare. And now we want this. It's like, yeah, but you've got to do it in the context of a song. Perfect. And he just, he just has it, has it down. It does. It's a very recognizable song. Um, I think like, you know, it starts, you know, exactly what it is. Like it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, it, it stands out. Uh, however, going your, your point, Paddy, I think for me, I'd, I'd, I'd rate it a lot higher than, than maybe, uh, you know, kind of, I want to, or something along those lines. But I think for me, it's probably, it stands out less maybe, although it's recognizable, you know, to the contrary of that, it's probably not memorable or as memorable for me, maybe personally. Okay, uh, we're in the uh, in the finishing straight now, I guess. Anybody else want to have got the only time? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is the slap, uh, slap and pop bass is back. <laughs> um, nice. Mirroring it with uh, synth, so they're playing the same phrase. So it, it, some of the main tone of the bass kind of disappears and it kind of leaks around the edge of the synth. And I think it gives a very pleasing, boingy effect and organic effect to the to the the synth, which is just, I think it's just um, incredibly good production. It's getting getting a new feel out of a, a, a similar synth sound, which I think is uh, was quite quite good. For, uh, it's got a, a fun ending as well. <laughs> but I'm not quite sure about the kind of weird pseudo guitar solo played on a synth to, to finish the song off. It's it always I'm never quite sure. It always sounds like he's like, oh, well put this in and we'll get we'll get <laughs> I'll do the guitar later. <laughs> um but uh, I mean, obviously it was deliberate, but it it has always has that sound of uh, it's not quite finished to my mind. Oddly enough, though, isn't it the one that had like the most people accredited to it? Like there's loads of producers and, and various things like it's had a lot of attention when you look at like, you know, your albums uh, and who was on what. It had a lot of people involved in this one. Maybe there were too many cooks. Well, maybe there's too <laughs> many cooks indeed. Yes, yes. I, I think there's some interesting things in here. There's like a really simple, sort of more syncopated drum part when he's singing the the lead line this yeah the only time i really feel alive and there's that bit where he has a more syncopated drum sample underneath it yeah. sort of thing i think that's really nice from a yeah point of view. Mm. perhaps this does feed into exactly what ed's just said and you've got a lot of producers saying no no no, no. <laughs> stick that bit in there and then we'll try this bit. i mean i don't know i don't know one of my favorite lines the devil uh the devil wants to fuck me in the back of his car it's <laughs> I don't know. That kind of stands out. Um, yeah, it just crashes to life when it hits the chorus. I, I don't think it's one of the strongest songs on the album, but it, it does feel like a bit of a patch, a patchwork, more overtly patchwork, perhaps, which could be down to the. Well, the chorus is straight ahead funk, is it not? I mean, I'm speaking out of turn here with uh... a little mm, leaning, leaning. I yeah. mean, in 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 a, in a in a kind of funk rock kind of yeah, uh, yeah. funky metal kind kind of way, leaning. I um, think... Whenever you have those kind of bass sounds hanging around, it's kind well, of it's, I think it's the syncopated nature as yeah, much as yeah. as anything, and that that the bass riff powering it through there. Yeah, I um I was looking up this song and it and it reminded me of something when I was having a look at look at it ahead of today. It was in Rock Band Three. I don't know if you folks <laughs> played Rock Band. Awesome, but what what. It, it's it is awesome, but why that song? Yeah, from this album, why that song? That just doesn't make any sense. A peculiar pick, unless it was the bass version of that. That's the only thing I think of. I don't yeah. know. That's really strange. Or maybe mm. it licensed everything else to other yeah. things. <laughs> or the other ones cost too much. <laughs> he's a savvy man. No, he's a savvy man. He is definitely. 
One of my, my uh, it's, like, it's a slight uh, divergence, but bear with me. One of my favourite sort of Nine Inch Nails things was when they. Um, this was going back a, a long while ago, but Max Max were a thing, and they were saying um, he released all of the Garage Band basically download so you could download a, a lot of the the popular songs in garage band but in typical trent fashion there was like 64 tracks laced in it and the minimum requirements to run it is you needed the mac pro with like at the time <laughs> like an unreal spec i, I priced it up and it was like a ten thousand pound computer back in the day and i was like yeah I'm not to <laughs> you need to load it in memory or it just doesn't work and i remember thinking i like I like the intention of like, here, I want you to do something with it too. Um, just, uh, <laughs> not, not quite twigging what his normal was. Yeah, <laughs> no, no one has this normal. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. It's, it's, that's kind of cute in a way. I do like that, actually. That's really yeah, good. It, it didn't load on a on a, on an iBook or whatever it was, the predecessor to the MacBook. It did, it did not work. <laughs> no, no, it's surprising if you were at 64 tracks. Good green. Yeah. <laughs> not bad at all. Okay, so the album closes out with Ring Finger. I find this a track that is a little bit different. I think, I can't remember which one you referred to as lightweight, Ian. Remind me, sorry. Kind of I want to. Kind of want to. I feel in a very positive way, which might sound a bit odd, Ring Finger's a bit lightweight, but it's sort of... You've got such a tumultuous album up to this point. It kind of works to close the album out. There, there is an aspect of unspectacularness about it, but it doesn't feel it had to necessarily finish with a bang, and this does the job sort of quite well. It, it, again, I, I can't exactly morphing it into something more distinct. I don't know how to explain it. Another one that's prom- uh, sort of prominently vocal-driven, mm. fairly simplistic stuff musically, um, it's not, it's, it's, yeah, it's less intense. It's just sort of goes along. Everything else, even if it's hard hitting, faster, slower, dancey, funk beat, mm. there's an intensity about them. It kind of feels like this isn't intense. I don't know. Uh, strange one. The, the other absolute go to for me is he's got a Prince sample in this. It's the skidding car from Alphabet Street. And it took me a while to work out what it was, but yeah. It's from Alphabet Street, and you can hear it at the end, a little car skid sound. Which brings me on to uh, the famous story. I'm sure most people would know this anyway if they know anything about Nanny Schnells. But, yeah, Trent Reznor um, kind of adored Prince, which there's a lot of parity between them, so it makes sense. And walked past Prince in a studio, and Prince blanked him because he was prone to being being a dick. He He had one foot in the real world and one foot not in the real world. And I think sometimes... He would have, honest to God, probably more shyness than being a dick. But I'm like, that is so sad because yeah. any potential of these two working together well, that, would have blown my They're both collaborators mind. as well. Oh, yes, would have blown yeah. my fucking mind. Yeah. It could have been absolutely amazing. And Trent really enjoyed that. I mean, he's done so many collaborations and, mm. and continues to do so. Like, I think, you know, he would have, I mean, he would have loved it. Living a dream, I'm sure. Yes. Um, and it would have been really interesting to see what happened. I'm sure there's people who've guesstimated with various mashups on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah. That's no. probably some late night YouTubing there. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, for me, the standout, I, I I love a good blobby synth arpeggio. 
absolutely love the the sound and tone of that. Um, I think what uh, a couple of things occurred to me. One, uh, some of those things kind of put me in mind of the kind of you know more kind of psychedelic dance type stuff, Osric tentacles even, and, and those kind of atmospheric things. Well, at least at, at the start. But listening to the lyrics and the structure of the um, first verse, I think if you did that on um, guitar and banjo, it's a country song. <laughs> that, perhaps, perhaps that was what I was looking for, you know. I Yeah, sort of. Because it's you've almost ru- well, you've like ruined the song for me there, really. <laughs> <laughs> but it's almost like you know she walked on out on me and stole my dog and my whiskey kind yeah. of thing, you know. Obviously, it get it gets to the the verse and, and kicks that notion into touch there with no mistake. The, but the I, sec- yeah, the second bit definitely couldn't be a country song. Could no. It? <laughs> but then the chorus is kind of a, a non-chorus. It's it's, it's strange. The, the chorus never conclusive conclusively builds to itself within the context of its own chorus. Yet you you sort of get a little bit harder elsewhere. But it's a I find it a very peculiar little song. It absolutely is. It's it's experimental in terms of structure as much as anything else. But ends the but does work at the end of the album. It does yep. work. Yeah, yeah. I think unless it's a bad song, though, most stuff would work, given the <laughs> shape of the album and what's on it. Like, I feel like yeah. you could have got away with a few of the other songs playing the same role. If, if the rest of it was, if the rest of it was more structured and less random, which I think you alluded to before, that's yeah. kind of the saving grace. But yeah, um, I don't know. All I can say, all I can say, I'm saying that from the context of this is probably one of the albums I've listened to of non-Prince albums over and over and over and over, and over, and over again, sort of thing. Mm. So it still it it does speak to me and makes sense that last one, but yeah, that might be the reason why. As an album, though, like it's quite different from the others, and I know a lot of them. Are, there's definitely some which are a lot closer, I think, in in style and approach and things, and you would see as being next to each other in the kind of chronological order. Mm-hmm. But for me, it stands out as being just a different album than than the other stuff that he's put out. It's it stands on its own, I think. I always selfishly wanted him to do another one of these mm. because he's so good at it. But then, you know, it's good that he hasn't as well because he's he's been himself and he's created some very challenging works and other massive hits mm. and, you know, the big selling yeah. albums and stuff. He's done okay for himself. It, yeah, lad, boy yeah. done well, boy done well. Yeah, no M- Michelin star chef. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the things I watched, not that it really served to educate me about Pretty Hate Machine anymore or give me any insights, but one of the things I watched prior to going, going into this podcast and recommend it to anybody is they went into the Rock and Roll, rock and roll Hall of Fame during the lockdown so um, because they couldn't do a proper everybody gets together on stage basically they did a zoom call where he had to pick you know the rock and roll hall of fame people would only let them have sort of so many you couldn't have every single person so obviously he's in this peculiar position where he is nine inch nails but he has a whole host of people over the years who've been his, his gigging musicians so for example richard patrick wasn't in that that meeting but you had like robin fink danny loner chris frenner uh elam and so on and so forth and, and atticus ross of course and it was such a nice listen and he i think the thing that struck me though it's painfully obvious because obviously he's an older guy now uh, i don't know how old he actually is i'm assuming he's knocking on 50 or just over 50 i don't know but like it's so nice to listen to him but then 
sort of think about doing this album because he's, it's such a journey and he's grown up sort of so much. And those mm-hmm. ideas of, you know, immaturity that he put forward himself about doing this album. And then he's got this sort of bunch of musicians, all of whom will have played probably most of these tracks at some point in, in the live experience. Mm. It just felt like more of a more of a full circle interview than than a lot of uh, musicians being interviewed could attain in a way. Yeah, I'd, rec- I'd highly recommend that. It's a really, really interesting listen. It's on YouTube. Um, it's great stuff. Once I've uh, finished looking for country adaptations of uh, <laughs> various songs, I'll have a look. <laughs> You've struck again, Ian. Good work, man. Good, good work. So, um, okay. So I guess a uh, little closing statements then, if if, if you want a little closing statements about the album. Well, I, th- I think I, I, I think in short, it uh, shows off the songwriting arrangement and production skills of the guy and the the atmosphere and mood that he manages to get out of the songs kind of it's no mystery why he's had a parallel career writing soundtrack Mm. because it is it's more than just songs it's it's a it's conjures up uh, images and feelings and uh, uh, and what have you probably an album anyone should listen to really regardless of what what genre is their uh, predominant favorite yeah i think for me um I think the reason it stands out versus maybe, you know, when you look at top 100 list of albums and things, I think the reason why it stands out is, is this was his, it doesn't feel like it, but this was his debut breakthrough album. He, in a single album coming from nowhere, he cemented his legacy and created, effectively created the platform for him to be a success off the back of. Mm. And I think, you know, it got him, you know, the head like a whole video, right? Everyone's seen a thousand times, you know, it, you know, it, it, it got him that notoriety and, that involvement in the industry and and stuff and i think for me it it just stands out as it it speaks to his his skill and his talent to be able to craft something as complete i know he said it's immature but as complete as this as your debut album uh it just doesn't feel like a debut album to me it feels feels very different and it's credit to him as an individual i think he morphed lots of things together to create something that was new for a debut album and also Mm. crossed over into popular culture i think that's that's not easy. I just, just as another aside as well, 1980, uh, 1989, other albums that came out in 1989, Pixies Do Little, Disintegration mm-hmm. by The Cure, Like a Prayer by Madonna, Jackson, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, Real Thing, Faith No More, Bleach by Nirvana. And this, fair enough, Bleach was a debut. Don't think anything else was there. As a debut album, it still sits solidly in that company. No problem yeah. at all. And that Absolutely. was a good year for music. Oh man, wasn't it just? Wasn't it just uh, as as a must hear album? Um, it, it's definitely up there. Definitely up there. D- despite the fact a lot of people would would classify it, you know, as more of a niche, you know, uh, you know, musical taste, etc. It's not as mainstream as a lot of those things, but it still holds. Dare I say, mainstream niche? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, what works, and that's that's the the cleverness well, of it in a way. Yeah, it it, it, fill, it fills a gap that's not served by any of the other mainstream bits and pieces. Absolutely, so. yeah, uh, succinctly put. Okay, thank you, Ed and Ian. Um, hope we see you on a on a couple more, Ed, if we can convince you to come up. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. Cool, cool, and we'll call it a night then. So, good night wherever you are. Night. Good night.